Let us pray. Almighty God, we thank you that by your Spirit you have called us, by your Spirit you have led us, and given us new life that we might follow this path that Jesus has set before us, but even more importantly, that we might be united to his strength and his life, that we would be given all that we need to stand before you and to walk before you, Father. It is out of your kind grace that we have Jesus himself for us and in us, that we can be in him and he in us. And so evermore, guide us by the spirit that you have given us, that we would know Jesus, that we would know that we are bound up in him and that he has made us his own. And we ask this all through Christ our Lord. Amen. Have you ever heard the phrase, you can't see the forest for the trees? Oftentimes I've heard it flipped the other way, you can't see the trees for the forest. But the phrase, you can't see the forest for the trees, it, it struck me this week as I was listening to one of my favorite bands. In fact, that was a line from the song. And it got me thinking, what does that even mean? In the, in the song, the singer says, I can't see the forest for the trees. The song itself, I think, is about faith at the end of the day. The singer is stuck in life, but he knows that the sun is going to shine again. He knows that it will come back out. He doesn't understand why or how, but yet he has grasped that it will somehow, through faith and the experience of faith, will come back. Simple trust is all we have to guide us sometimes. And in the midst of all of that, the singer admits he can't see the forest for the trees. He's stuck in the minor details. He can't see the bigger picture of how these events are working together in his life. He can only see each detail in front of him. But he knows that there is a bigger picture all about him. There is a bigger picture he's part of that will work out. Because he's learned, he says elsewhere, to trust the changing of the seasons, to trust the ups and downs because that's part of life, but that there will be good and that that good will ultimately win out even when he can't see the big picture, even when all he can see are the individual trees, all he can see are all the details and all the events around him. But he knows that there's still a forest. He knows that there's a big picture that he's part of and that good is the end of all things. Of course, not everything in the song is pertinent to our passage, but that phrase caught me this week. I can't see the forest for the trees. Isn't that a beautiful description of our everyday lives, that we have all the trees in front of us, and they do make up a forest, but we just can't see past the individual trees. We have the minor details, but we missed the big picture. Details can get us through to the eventual point of seeing the grander, greater picture. But sometimes we have to be reminded that there are more, there is more than these individual trees that are right in front of us, that there's a whole forest all around us. And that's what struck me this week as I studied our gospel lesson, as I studied about Jesus going into the wilderness to be tempted. So often we get caught up in the immediacy of the temptations. We get caught up and see 
and focus on this idea of like, look while, look at what Jesus did to resist the devil. He quoted scripture. That's what we got to do. We take it, Jesus did this, therefore we do this. We do a one-to-one -one correspondence of simply looking at what Jesus did. We look at how he did these things. We look at how he resisted. But the, the forest isn't that. The how Jesus resisted are the individual trees. That's, that's just minor detail, how he did it. The big picture is why. Why did Jesus resist? Why did Jesus resist the ways of the devil? Why did he resist these temptations? We have all these trees, but there's a big picture. And if we look past those trees and let our eyes readjust, we can discover a bigger truth, a grander picture, a greater purpose to all of this. But we have to take our eyes off the immediacy of the temptations and how they apply to us and look at the big picture of Scripture. I would go so far as to say that the temptation is not here in order to teach us about resisting temptation. That is not its purpose. That's an application, yes. That's something that when you get down to scale of interpretation, yes, it's part of it, but it's not really the main point. It's not the big idea. So it's not wrong to see that, but there's more to it. There's a grander narrative that we miss out on, and we miss the forest of the whole narrative of Scripture if we limit ourselves only to the how Jesus resists. The forest that we are supposed to see is why. Luke and Matthew are both putting Jesus before us on a pedestal, yes. He is being lifted up by them, not so that we can discover three ways to overcome the devil, but so that we can discover that he is the one who overcomes the devil on our behalf, so that we don't have to fear not seeing the forest anymore. That, yeah, we'll see the trees, but we know that the forest is taken care of. The big picture is done because Jesus overcame the devil for us. But to grasp this, we've got to step back and do a little Old Testament research. We have to see the background of all of this. And the first thing that I want us to think about is right there at the end of chapter 3 is Jesus' genealogy. Jesus gets baptized and Luke recounts his genealogy. At the end of that genealogy, there in verse verses 38, verse 38 of chapter 3, Luke writes that Jesus is the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. Jesus is the son of Adam. And by being the son of Adam, he is the son of God according to his human nature. That Adam was the first creature in his image. That he was the first creature in God's image and thus was a type of son of God. And so right there, Luke declares that Adam in his perfection was the son of God. During Jesus' baptism, the father says to Jesus, you are the beloved son. You are my chosen son. You are the one and true unique son that will come back to us. Jesus being declared to be the son, just like Adam has been declared to be the son. But there's also Israel herself. The entirety of Israel is called God's son in various places in the Old Testament. In Exodus 4, 22 and 23, when God is preparing Moses to go back to Egypt to talk to Pharaoh, he tells him, to tell Pharaoh, Israel is God's firstborn. 
He is God's firstborn son, so let him come to serve Yahweh. That is Moses' message, that Israel is God's true son. Let him come out into the wilderness to serve. Hosea says that when Israel was a child, I loved him. Or I should say, Yahweh speaking through Hosea. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. I'm sure our ears have perked up at that. Out of Egypt I called my son. St. Matthew directly quotes that to refer to Jesus. Hosea was writing about Israel. But Matthew picks up on that and says this is really about Jesus as he is fleeing from Herod and his madness. He will return out of Egypt because God will call his son out of Egypt. And so we have Israel is God's son, Adam is God's son, and Jesus is God's son. Israel as a nation is also a son of God, and thus each was to be obedient. Each was to play a role before the father of being obedient, of having no other gods. But both failed in that endeavor. Adam and Israel both worshipped something in creation other than the creator. Whether other beings or themselves, they simply did not worship Yahweh alone. And so they failed in God's callings, in the calling that they had as God's sons. And now, with Jesus, another steps into the field, another steps forward. He enters this world as the one and unique, only begotten Son of the Father. He's as human as all of us, 100% man, knitted together in the womb of Mary, and yet is different because he's also the eternal Son. He is the Son by divinity and the Son by nature, by his human nature, being declared thus. He's truly God and yet truly man. And so Jesus becomes, in this moment, the new Adam and the true Israel. He is the one who will do what neither of those were capable of doing. But that's not the only parallel that Luke has built up for us here with the genealogy. There's simply also the connection with the 40 years of Israel in the <coughs> desert and the 40 days of Jesus in the desert. That's a major parallel of Jesus being there for 40 days to redo what Israel did during its 40 years. Israel for 40 years underwent temptations in the desert, so now here is Jesus undergoing temptations for 40 days. Moses said in Deuteronomy 8.2, with words about God testing Israel in the wilderness for 40 years, God was working to purify Israel's faith. And yet their own flesh and the devil converted all of these things into, into temptations. And the people constantly went astray. They continually turned against God and refused to trust in Him. So God led Israel through the wilderness. And here the Spirit leads Jesus into the wilderness where He is tempted by Satan. Satan takes that testing time of Jesus in the wilderness that God has planned, and he attempts to turn it into sin. He turns them into temptations. He takes the hardships that Jesus is going through during his fasting, and he turns them into temptations to lead Jesus away from faith, as opposed to him being strengthened through the test. <clears throat> Satan desires to bring Jesus down. He attempts to turn Jesus from faith, to turn him from God and from being strengthened. He turns it all into temptation. 
He makes us weak by taking that which will make us strong and turning it into something else that takes away the promises of God. And that's why Jesus is being attacked by Satan. Satan is taking that testing and turning it into temptations. And so lastly, for the parallel here, Jesus quotes everything from Deuteronomy 6 through 8. Each of the three quotations he makes directly at the devil is from Deuteronomy 6 through 8. And that's important for this parallel because there Moses is recounting to Israel as they are on the cusp of entering into the promised land finally. He's reminding them about all the mistakes they made in the wilderness. He's reminding them of the law of God. He's reminding them of how Yahweh has carried them through the desert despite their faithlessness. Yes, he has punished and disciplined them off and on, but nonetheless, he has brought them to the cusp of the promised land. And so it's all about God's faithfulness and Israel's rejection. And Moses is reminding the people as they are about to enter the promised land, don't forget what this God has done for you as a people. Cling to his promises, cling to his truthfulness, cling to who he is in and of himself. And that is exactly where Jesus is right now, is in the desert, in the wilderness, being assaulted by Satan. <laughs> and so Jesus uses those words of reminder, those words of caution to defeat the devil. And so with the background, we can see that this passage isn't about how we overcome, but it's why Jesus was there in the first place. He is there to begin the process of being the one who resists, the one who overthrows, the one who takes the devil and defeats him in the midst of his own game. Jesus isn't there to show us how to do it, but he's there to show us that he is the one who does what we can't do. And so he redoes all the events of the Old Testament on our behalf. So there's the background. Jesus is there for us to defeat the devil. Now what actually does happen in the midst of these temptations, what is going on now? The core of these temptations is a challenge of Jesus' sonship. Luke recounts to us that the first and last temptation here begins with, well, if you're the son of God, if you're the son of God, then why don't you do this or that or this other thing? Aren't you hungry as the son of God? Shouldn't you just make bread out of these stones? Ironically, a temptation that Adam fell for by taking the fruit of the knowledge of the tree of good and evil. But Jesus does not submit to that temptation. He resists it. Even though, yes, he is hungry, Adam was not because he had all kinds of other food to eat there in the garden, but yet he still went and took from the tree. He received from the tree. But Jesus does not. He does not take food out of the stones. He does not change the stones to food. And Jesus says if you that you are to not live by bread alone. Man shall not live by bread alone. And that comes again out of Deuteronomy 8 where, God is, where Moses reminds the people of God's glorious works that he gave them manna when they were hungry in order to teach them not to live by bread alone but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus is dependent on the words of God alone here. Even though he could easily make stones turn into bread, he says it's not about me needing to eat. It is about me needing to feed off of God himself by his word. 
We need his word as the very foundation. And that was what God was teaching Adam and teaching Israel in the desert. And now that he is bringing this forth through Jesus, the accomplishment of dependence, the accomplishment <coughs> of trust, the accomplishment of feeding off of the word itself. Adam, of all people, should have known more than any of us not to listen to the devil. He walked with and spoke to God directly. He had God's word given to him directly. And yet, when Satan tempted him with going his own way, he pursued it and chose a different path. Israel, likewise, does the same thing. Israel grumbles and complains and throws away the food and throws it back in God's face, face constantly that he provides for them. They can constantly go back and say, wasn't life so much better back in Egypt? Because they won't depend on the word of God. They won't depend on the words that comes from God. And yet Jesus does this. Jesus stakes his very being. He stakes everything on his father and his word revealed. And the other temptations are likewise. The devil takes him up and shows him all the kingdoms of the world and says, I can give you all of this. It's been given to me and I can give it to who I want. So worship me. Again, Jesus says, you shall worship the Lord your God and only him and him only shall you serve. Again, this is something that has been promised to the Messiah, the kingdoms of the world. Psalm 2 says, I will make them, the kingdoms, a heritage to the Messiah. Daniel sees in his visions the Son of Man coming in all dominion, being given to the Son of Man. This is the promise to the Messiah that he will receive all the fullness of the kingdoms for himself. And Satan tries to give him his own way there to take from him the path that God has directed him to go on. Will he worship the Lord his God or will he worship Satan in his ways? And of course, Jesus quickly says, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. The kingdoms already are Jesus's by right of his sonship and by right of his eternal sonship as the son of God. He already has the dominion. He is simply manifesting it through his ministry and through his death and resurrection. It will be fully manifested that all things are to submit to him because he is the only begotten. This quote occurs in Deuteronomy where Moses says, Take care lest you forget the Lord your God when you enter into the land. When you enter into the promises of God, the fulfillment of all that he has given you, don't forget him. And that forgetting there is not a passive, accidental forgetting, like, oh, I forgot where I put my car keys today. No, this is an active forgetting. This is, I don't care that God brought me into this land. It's my land now, and I'm going to do what I want and ignore God now. That's the forgetting that Moses is warning the people against. Don't enter into sin in that way. Don't actively turn from God to idols. Don't remove God from your thoughts. And so Jesus reminds the devil that we cannot thrust God away from us. We are called to keep him ever before us. The devil wants Jesus to throw away everything that the Father will give him. And in the last temptation, what I love about this is Satan finally turns and tries to play Jesus' game now. He tries to quote scripture, and he gets it almost in his quotes. But it's interesting what he leaves out from Psalm 91. In this temptation, he takes him to the pinnacle of the temple and says, why don't you jump? 
because God has promised that he will command his angels to guard you and that they'll lift you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. What's interesting is that he leaves out a couple of words. We just read it this morning. Psalm 91 says that he will give his angels charge over you to keep you in all your ways. He leaves that little phrase out. But then the real kicker is when he says on their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. The next verse, speaking of feet, says you shall tread upon the lion and the adder, the young lion and the serpent. You shall trample, you shall trample under your feet. Convenient that Satan forgot to mention that part of the promise, that the Messiah is going to crush him. The Messiah is going to trample him underfoot. He is going to take out this lion that roars and searches and follows the people trying to strike and take them down. The Messiah, yes, will be lifted up by the angels so that he won't strike his foot in order that those perfect feet can crush Satan under them. And that is what Jesus says, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Jesus overcomes Satan. He overcomes these temptations by taking Scripture to himself and keeping God ever before him. All of this is about the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. To keep that as Jesus does is to fulfill all of the commandments because to pursue God as the only true God means that you listen to everything that he says. And that is what Jesus is doing. He is paying attention to Scripture. He is paying attention to His Father. He is listening and following the will of His Father. And so seeing that background and looking at these temptations and how they relate to that background, we see Jesus overcoming. We see the overcoming that Jesus does for us. He does what we can't do. He overcomes the devil. He says no to the devil's ways and to his temptations as Adam failed to do, as all of Israel as a nation failed to do, as we all failed to do. As my seminary professor, Dr. Kruger, who first pointed this out, Jesus is the, to me anyway, first pointed out that Jesus is the first man to ever say no to the devil and to keep saying no. He looks at the devil and says, no, I'm not going to give in to your temptations. I am going to follow the will of God. And he consistently does it. We might say no for half a second and then fail. Maybe we last a little longer, but we always give in to the temptations at one point or another because our sin nature weakens us. Our sin nature drives us away from God and drives us to want and desire the very things that God tells us that we can't have and that we shouldn't have because he has greater and more glorious things for us. But Jesus actively does what we fail to accomplish. He overcomes for you. He overcomes for me. We become overcomers by being in Jesus, by being united to him, by being bought by him, by being redeemed and bound up together with him through baptism and through feeding on this Lord's Supper. We are bound and united to him more and more in that work that he has done here in the desert the perfect picture of his active obedience, if there isn't, if there ever is one, him actively doing what we are supposed to do. And he gives it to us. He does it for us in order to give it to us. 
I like how Chad Bird sums it up. He says, Jesus as the son of the father, the last Adam, and the man Israel undid and redid the failures of our fathers in paradise and the wilderness by remaining steadfast and faithful to his father, thereby winning victory over all the evil forces. The temptation account is good news for you. Jesus overcomes all of these temptations for you so that you can walk in him and be renewed. And yes, being able to resist temptation yourself, but it's not your power resisting it. It is the power of the Spirit and Jesus himself working in you and through you. That is the forest that we miss in the temptation that Jesus overcomes for us. He resists for you. He resists for the sake of the world. He says no to the devil so that we can be redeemed. As the choir says, the band that I was listening to earlier this week, I believe the sun will shine on you and me, my friend. I have learned to trust the turning of the seasons. Even now, the sun is breaking through the clouds again. But I still don't know the causes or the reasons. And I still can't see the forest for the trees. So it's okay if you've never seen this before. It's okay if you forget that the main point is Jesus overcame for you in this passage. There's plenty of other places where that's made abundantly clear. But cling to it and let it undergird and become a foundation as you read this passage over and over to know that Jesus has overcome for you in order that you can overcome in him all things and become one with him more and more and made a son of the Father because Jesus is a son of the Father. Become a child through the work of Jesus this day and know that Jesus has overcome for your sake and for mine. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen. amen.